Hello and welcome to another week of the 3 Plus 1 podcast. So we are joined by our host, Tracy and Bonner. Tracy, welcome back. Welcome. Welcome to me, guys. Thank so, you. Tracy, you've <laughs> had a full weekend mm-hmm. uh, celebrating homecoming at the Tennessee State University. Yes, the Tennessee State University. Who did you play for the homecoming game? Austin P. Austin P. And, and we won. You 26 guys, to 24. 20, it was a... Very close game. Very close game. Yeah. Congratulations to the Tennessee State uh, community. <laughs> Were there any big surprises or anyone that you want to shout out or any great things that you've seen from uh, alumni and classmates or the university in general? Well, this is your time to highlight the great work of <laughs> Tennessee State University. I would like to send a special shout out to two freshmen, uh, Destinies. They're both named Destiny. Um, I made some care packages for them because unfortunately... They spent a week without electricity, without hot water, and without uh, warm food. And so I decided to, you know, give back to them. So, but I mean, that's it. I love Tennessee State University, but we are an HBCU and our funding, we're in need of, as are a lot of HBCUs. So, yeah. So there's a need there for donorship. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. And we are also joined by uh, a very, very special guest today. Uh, we are excited to have with us James Woodall, the newly elected president of the Georgia NAACP. Welcome, Woo-hoo! James. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I'm just ready to get, get into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of questions. So, James, one thing that I want to say, you know, uh, to you first and foremost is, again, congratulations. I've known this young man for a very long time, uh, and I'm just really proud of your journey. We're going to talk a lot about your journey on Wednesday to really talk about how you got here. But before we do that, today I really want to talk about the NAACP in general. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell us, what is the point mm-hmm. of the NAACP in 2019? Uh, well, first, I want to acknowledge that I am grateful for that question because the entire time that I was on the campaign trail, that was the question that we were asking. Why is the NAACP relevant? What purpose does it serve? What what position or what function does it have in our society? And we do three things. We've always done these three things, and we continue to do those three things, but I believe we need to amp them and amplify them even more. The first thing we do is public policy. Right? We need to advocate for the issues that matter to our people in our communities, whether it's expansion of Medicaid, whether it's not just insurance, but actually talking about access to care, whether it's ensuring that hospitals are not closing, whether it's climate control, whether it's environmental injustice, whether it's racial uh, sensitivity training for our police departments. Those kinds of things, at the end of the day, when it comes to public policy, we need to have an agenda. And then be able to go to the halls of power and declare that this is what we want, this is what we demand, and this is what we shall receive. Because um, that's what politics is all about. It's not about headlines. It's not about what person said what and when they said it. It's always about the reallocation of resource and making sure that people get what, when, where, and why. That's all it's about. The second thing we are about is litigation. When public policy is our focus when it comes to advocacy and the Uh, government passes legislation. If they agree to it, approve it, and allow it to become statute, they have to abide by those things. When the government does not do that, we sue the hell out of them. And right now, we're we're already in preparation. I've been on the job less than a week, and we're already in preparation of suing the state of Georgia already. Right? And so, the last thing we do, so we do litigation, we do public policy, 
But then in, 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 in converse, or not converse, but also in consultation with those two things, we also do direct action. So when the law process, the, the legislative process goes according to plan, then we have the litigation process going according to plan. We're in the courts. We're in the halls of power. We also got folks in the streets. We have uh, 159 counties here in Georgia. We have a, a branch, a unit, and over half of them, right? Now, we only know about Atlanta, but we have an entire state outside of Atlanta. And they are rural, they are black, and they are poor. And so the work that we do is so relevant to them because in, in when I spent the last uh, really about six years down in South Georgia, they, they used to always tell me this. They said... There are two people that black folks call when they get on the, in trouble. They call Jesus and they call the NAACP. And so it was our task, and I say our intentionally, it was our task to ensure that our organization not only sustains itself for the next generation, but also becomes very relevant to the real work that needs to be done right now. And so that's what we're focused on doing, establishing that foundation so that when the census, the census comes, when uh, redistricting comes, when... Uh, this, uh, uh, the presidential elections is, is being prepared to be had. We are in position to be effective because we know we're going to have to sue some people. We know we're going to have to be at that state capitol come January to be able to put, put forth legislation that helps our people. And so I'm excited to get to get started. You know, everybody's wanting to do celebrations and things like that. But I look at it and I say, it's not a congratulation. It's a good luck because this work is necessary and people's lives literally are at stake. And so I'm, I'm just so happy to be in this position to do this work, which I know I've been called to do. And as the ancestors used to always sing, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify. That's, amen, Reverend. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a question that's kind of piggybacking that. Um, what are you doing to engage the youth, the younger um um, and they don't necessarily have to be teenagers, but they're millennials. Like, that's, yeah, yeah, our, that's the point of our podcast. Our millennials, our millennials. What are you doing to engage them? Because I've heard so many young people say, "Well, you know, I, I'm not going to vote because it doesn't uh, bother me. You know, it doesn't influence anything that I'm doing voting." Um, we don't seem to have like emerging leaders. Who are going into our community? So, what what is your plan to engage those young people? Well, I'm a product of that program, right? Okay. So, we have a program called Next Gen, which is a twenty, I mean, a twelve month leadership training pipeline that we are intentionally taking uh, twenty one to thirty five year olds that are already in association or in our communities doing the work or believe that they're doing the work, give them the tools to be effective, right? And so, what we do is we take it's about uh, fifty people from all over the country. We actually have about 200, but 50 people we pay for. We fund, we get the funders to support them. They don't have to pay a single thing. And we take them all across the country. So we got four quarters of every year. And every quarter, we take them somewhere else and we train them. We sit them down, tell them how to fundraise, tell them how to write legislative action plans, tell them how to go get people registered to vote, tell them how to organize their community, right? Communication strategies and all those things. And then what we do is we say, now, not only are you equipped to lead, we're going to put you in a position to do so because our organization is only as strong as the youngest people in the room, right? So when we're going into these streets, it's young people leading, right? When we're going into the courtroom, it's young lawyers leading, right? When we're going into the, the legislative assembly halls, it's young people leading, right? And so it's an intentional effort to be able to really uh, step back and say, it's not that we're trying to get young people. 
It's rather saying that young people literally are our, our foundation, right? And so in my administration, I am very intentional because the young people are what got me elected. I won by five votes. Oh, wow. Five wow. votes, and I had to beat the current sitting state president. And the only way I was able to do that is because these college chapters came out and supported. They said, I believe in what you're trying to do. And as soon as I was elected, I kid you not, there were so many young people saying, I don't know how, how to get involved, but I want to because I trust in what you are doing. And I think that's what it takes. So as far as the voting thing goes, we have to, as a people, and I get in trouble about, for saying this, but I, I still say it to the day I die, we have to give people a reason. Give them something to vote for. Not saying your people died, people bled. They care about that, but at the end of the day, if they're voting for two evils, I'm not going to push them to vote. Because I don't believe in evil at all. I want them to vote because they believe that what they're voting for actually makes a difference. And we have to prove that. That is our responsibility as community leaders. Not to just shove it down their throat and say, you just need to vote. Well, what are you voting for? Because every vote has consequences, regardless of if it's a Democrat or Republican. Because let's be honest, the Democrats aren't aren't off the hook either. Right? They did this before Republicans did it today. So we have to construct a narrative that benefits our people. That, that helps our agenda and moves our communities forward. Well said. It is well said. Um, I mean, wow, you know, that's just, I'm just in awe. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm exceptionally proud that, you know, one, that I know you, but I'm extremely proud that the NAACP has taken a step forward by electing in this state a young person, a millennial, to move forward with this work. Because to be honest, the work of the Georgia NAACP, in my opinion, has been very stagnant for a very long time. And so I'm really excited to see that it's making a comeback with strong leadership. Oftentimes, when running for an office, a specific platform is endorsed or espoused by a candidate. Upon what platform did you run for this opportunity? I'm glad you asked. And I told the, the delegates there, I said, I ran because of three words. In 2014, I got my beginning in the NWSP, and it was when Eric Garner was literally choked to death. And he said three words upon literally taking his last breath. He said, I can't breathe. And as a preacher, one of the first scriptures I ever learned was, and it was called this, it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But unfortunately for too many of our people, they are literally being suffocated by the confines and the stranglehold of white supremacy and it's killing them every single day. My interest is not in simply maintaining hegemony, ensuring that America survives. I don't care about none of that. My only priority is to make sure that my people breathe so that they can give God glory because when they breathe, they give God glory. But when they cannot breathe, not only are our people dying, but God is literally being suffocated God himself because God cannot get what God created us to get. Mm -hmm. And so when, when it comes to uh, voter suppression, that's suffocation. When it comes to poverty, that's suffocation. When it comes to uh, mass incarceration, that's suffocation. When it comes to poor health, uh, mental health institutions, that's suffocation. When it comes to climate control, right, and climate injustice, right, they, can, they literally can't breathe. Literally. Cannot breathe. And so My God. <laughs> we have to literally grab. That is See, so is, true. This, I never. I mean, this is the role. This is the role of the NWCP is to literally take the stranglehold from their necks and allow them to breathe. So what do you say to people who are like, because I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I've been one of these people who said, yeah, white supremacy is an issue. We mm -hmm. do need to continue to tackle that. But we also have an issue within our community where we are attacking one another. Mm -hmm. We are 
not fully educated, mm-hmm. um, but we have some resources. Let's let's not act like we don't have access to education. You know what I'm saying? So we, there are some resources. So what do you say to us that say, you know, what's your agenda for those of us who are like the black community is our own enemy as well? So a few things. One, I say we can have two conversations at the same time, right? We can choose bubblegum in walk at the same time. And the other thing I would say is that we first have to define what the black community is because we all have a different working definition of what blackness is all about. Some people think it's just African-Americans that come from the diaspora. Some people say think it's ADOS, the um, American descendants of slaves. Some people think it's everybody who is not white. Some people don't even know what whiteness is. And so in, in order to have that conversation, we first need to define what blackness is. But secondly, when it comes to the black community, we have to acknowledge that the black community is not monolithic. That's true. And so when it comes to the institutions of the quote-unquote black community, when it comes to ensuring that the community exists, mm-hmm. we first have to take a step back and say, well, historically, what has happened? Mm-hmm. We can look at Auburn Avenue. Yeah. Right? I was, I Let, let's look at Auburn Avenue. Please. Why did Auburn Avenue get the status that it did? It was not because of... Black people was so invested in blackness and maintaining that yeah, yeah. was because their their white slave owners gave them money and created a black wealthy class. So without the financial assistance, is that what is keeping us from getting ahead? <clears throat> well, there are structural impediments that prevent the, the, the quote-unquote black community from being able to sustain itself. Mm-hmm. My concern is with ensuring that those impediments are removed. Mm-hmm. Now, we remove those impediments and we still got a human condition to address, yeah. which is not black and white. Yeah. It's human. It's moral. It's, it's, it's carnal in nature. And so we have to... And, and, and it's, a, it's a consciousness. It's a paradox of consciousness that I acknowledge that says, on one hand, we're talking black and white, which is, in, in other words, it's flesh, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's human. But on the other hand, we're still dealing with something that's not flesh and blood. That's literally spirit in nature. And so we have to be able to wrestle those two simultaneously while also still, in real ways, acknowledging the forces of evil that perpetrate our communities every single day. When you talk about black-on-black crime, well, why in the hell did that they are in those situations in the first place. We can, we got, we have to talk about the consciousness of black people in the ghettos, right? Why was the ghetto created in the first place, right? When Vietnam veterans came home, black Vietnam veterans came home, they didn't get those VA home loans, and so therefore they were not able to create their own kind of wealth and give their family opportunity to make it. Now, some people made it, <laughs> right? But so those things have effect in our everyday discourse. And if we don't acknowledge that, I think we start the conversation at the wrong place. Because we started here, you see, well, you know, black folks not supporting each other. They got access. They're doing this. We can't demonize our people, but we also have to have, have some sort of accountability. And, and have critical conversations right. to push the thought forward to, right. it, to really make people kind of have, I mean, for lack of a better word, to wake up. Right. Um, you know, the same thing kind of goes when you talk about education. Mm-hmm. And you talk about people not, quote unquote, wanting to be educated, but what's being glorified by society for black people. We're constantly being given images that are not of education or not of educated people saying, this is your role model. This is what you should see. This is what you should aspire to. And because of that, people are buying into that hook, line, and sinker as opposed to saying, this is not who or what I really want to be or should be. And and it's being glorified on a continuous and consistent basis. And if I could, very very briefly, I would say that our people... uh, 
we 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 call it a, the crisis of consciousness. We call it the Jesus Christ season of consciousness, right? And our people have been convinced in their worship that they are worthless, and so white supremacy has won. Wow! Wait a minute, Explain James. Explain that. Now, yeah, Explain give us a little. Now, wait. Now, give us a little bit more about that. We have been convinced as a people that we're worthless, that we're the wretched of the earth, mm-hmm. that we're sin-sick, and that we have not any power. We say this thing, we say, well, we're going to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Say, no, the hell you're not. We're going to speak truth in power because the power that declared that we were living souls is the same power that we cl- that we declare that Jesus rose from the dead. But if this same power is not av- is available to us, then why the hell are we still suffering? Why the hell is, is I'm sorry to say that, but why in the hell, yeah, why in the hell is, is black blood literally draining our streets and cries of broken souls are literally ringing in our ears? If we have that power. And so when we go into worship on Sunday mornings, what word, what whose word is literally empowering us? Mm-hmm. We have to be very careful about what we allow to speak into our lives because it's killing us. So many black activists have brought that point up and it's kind of, it's not really rev, revert you know it's not resonating for many but you know saying that Christianity and the Bible in particular has been used to continuously enslave the minds of black people and in some ways you're somewhat is that what you're saying oh yeah and I'm a professing Christian and I declare the gospel as my truth mm-hmm. right so how do we change that narrative because I too am a Christian and I don't feel enslaved by mm-hmm. The, the word that was yeah. Can you give us like a, you know how has the Bible been used to perpetrate white supremacy and what can we do to break free of that? I have a perfect example. Literally two weeks ago, we watched as a a black male talked to the killer of his brother mm-hmm. and said, "My brother would be okay. Would want me to forgive you because that's the right Christian thing to do." Then he goes on to say, he said this, and it pissed me off. He says, and I didn't plan on saying this, but I didn't even want to go to prison. And I thought about that. I said, how is a good Christian synonymous with what God wants us to do? And then I started, as the scholar I am, I started looking at what Christianity was all about, who created it, why was it created? And it was not created so that people could be free. Christianity was started in the third century with Constantine. To ensure that the masses of people wouldn't be able to be controlled. So then I said, well, Jesus wasn't Christian. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is be very critical about what you claim to believe. Because what you claim to believe actually has power. Right? I believe in Jesus. I believe that he got up. But what I don't believe is telling people that they are sinful. That they are in need of some white salvation that frees them from, from, from their chains. Because look at what Paul is saying. He says that you should be a slave. Slaves obey your master, as Romans 13 says. Those kinds of things, those nuances that are embedded in that text. If we're not critical in what we're reading, it's going to kill our people. And the reason why I know it, because it already has. Wow. So, I mean, that's that's powerful. That's profound. And it really requires, I think, a lot of unpacking. I think that, if anything, you've given us so many uh, nuggets of wisdom and points of contention to discuss and to unfurl and to unpack. And that's something that I really think, Tracy, we need to have a three plus one chat where our listeners can kind of come in, add in and give thoughts, commentary. 
So we got to get our Twitter game up and going, and we'll work on that. That's something I think we need to work on. Our last question for you on this Monday, before we dive into the news and the dish, is, is this. There are a number of pressing issues that really impact our nation. There's so many things happening in 2019 that are having a massive impact and influence on the African-American or black community. When you think about and scale back, what is the most urgent issue impacting Georgia's NAACP and the work that you have ahead of you? If I had to choose one issue that hits literally everybody, it it would have to be poverty. Mm. It would have to be uh, poverty because poverty impacts us in many ways. We we have a working ethic within our community that says we have to work twice as hard to get half of what they got. But the reality of it is, is people are working three times as hard and end up with nothing. They're going to college, getting PhDs, and still having to work three and four jobs just to make ends meet. Right? We're talking about housing. Right? People, we tell people, well, you want to go own a house. They Hell, they can't even own a house now, but they won't get a mortgage or they won't get approved for a loan because of the student loan debt is so outrageous that they won't even get approved. And then they can't even rent because now you have to make three times as much of what the rent costs to even get a rent housing in the first place. Right? And then it, it, it goes crazy. And then you talk about health care. Right? Going back to, to, to poverty. That people aren't able to literally live because they don't have enough money. And our, and our society says, if you don't have money, you don't matter. That's what capitalism is saying. You need to work hard. Mm. But I guarantee you, every single billionaire did not work hard. They worked smarter. They worked efficiently. They made use of a system that was already flawed from the get-go. For a very for 1% of that 1%, right. but the majority of that 1% inherited their wealth. Inherited their wealth. Uh, whether it was a loss of a wealthy family member or, if, you know, or if it was that someone had broken down barriers before them with innovation right. and great ideas and then it passed it on to them, like what we have with President Trump. Um, and speaking of uh, your president, yeah. last week uh, we saw that his... Acting Chief of Staff uh, Mick Mulvaney admitted that uh, aid was aid to Ukraine was connected to uh, President Trump's desire for the country to pursue a probe related to the 2016 election. Uh, it seemed as though that uh, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney clearly admitted to a quid pro quo, which the White House has continuously denied and said repeatedly that that is not the case. But it seems as though this is an admission of guilt. My question for both of you, I guess, or for all of us to somewhat discuss, is does Mulvaney's admission of guilt regarding quid pro quo mark President Trump as guilty of treason to the American people? Tracy, you're looking like... Absolutely. I mean, come on. Was that a duh? Yeah, but I'm I'm just like, what more... What more do we need to have in front of us? I mean, we have all the evidence. I mean, this discussion is mute. For me, I can't really... You say it's a a done deal. Because he is a criminal. He is... It it has been proven. That President Trump has definitely violated numerous ethical rules and possibly laws. Yes. So, I mean, what else do we need to do? If this was Barack Obama, a black man, he would have been impeached 
by now and possibly in prison by I now. I think that if it was not President fair. Clinton, I think Clinton, if it was yeah. President George this, W. Bush. I, I President really Bush had a lot of detractors throughout, you know, every, you know, he made a lot of decisions that were highly controversial. Yes. And after the um, Iraqi war happened, you know, the tides turned for him and he faced a lot of criticism. Right. I don't think that he could have gotten away with this. I just don't understand why the Republican Party mostly is not calling a lot of this out. Why are they so afraid? It, it appears that they are afraid to speak against this man. President they Trump leverages afraid. the media to yeah. his advantage. And, and, they will say, and he leverages social media in a way that no other president, president has, has ever, ever done. Had. And they will say, well, I'll, I'll vote against him as long as it's anonymous. But they won't do it in public because they know the power of wealth and influence because it's built their careers. And if they don't toe the party line and place their party above their uh, ethics and their values and who they are, or even above the people they are supposed to serve. I just don't see how they can sleep at night. I agree. Knowing that they are supporting someone. President Woodall. Yeah. So. Cut me off. Just just two things. (laughs) Two things. One is that Mulvaney is uh when he when he used this right he he literally was recorded mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they have text messages the evidence there's evidence to support uh this Mulvaney not the only one you have uh Giuliani you mm-hmm. have you, you got so many people right but the other thing is that we have to be very careful because what is taking place is a distraction. Yeah, absolutely. That every single it's time these kinds of things happen, our focus goes on this pigeonhole that we're going to get Trump. And something else is taking place across the world, right? Look at what's going on in Brazil. America has very much to do with what's going on there. What's going on with Brexit in oh, Europe, yeah, right? That's that literally has an impact on what the global market will do, right? So, yes, Trump needs to be impeached, but that cannot be the focus of our push because Trump... This is not the first thing he's done. No. Ever since he was elected. Yeah. Right? When it came to Biden and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's another quid pro quo, uh, quote, right? And so, like, I, I get so frustrated because I'm like, they spend, the media spends so much time on talking about Trump this, Trump that, Trump this, Trump that. The media is responsible for Trump's election. Yeah. They absolutely. literally would report 24 7 about what he was doing during the election. And what he was saying. The foolish things yeah. that were coming out of his mouth got nonstop yeah. coverage. And he knew that would happen. Yeah. No, I, 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 I don't like talking about him at all. I don't understand. But because it's, it's like you have all these Christians who claim that they're, you know, they're Republican and we're Christian. And you see someone who's doing, for lack of better terms, sinful things, criminal things, and you don't speak out against it. You don't stand up against it regardless. You like I feel like we should be fearless in pursuit of fearless in right. your faith. Yeah, like absolutely. Like if I if I see you doing wrong, I don't care that you're my homeboy, I'm gonna call you out. I period point blank. And I think that needs to be everywhere. Right. Regardless. If you see me doing wrong, you call me out on that. You hold me accountable. But he does something to these people that makes them so fearful of their jobs. And and it's like, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't care. But I guess because I don't come from money. So you you're not concerned about I losing. Don't, yeah, it doesn't bother me to lose something and start over. You know, I would say that if this was the 19, late 80s, 
well, the 80s and going into the 90s, I would say that, you know, it could be an excuse for the many evangelical Christians that are out there who are supporting or who supported, you know, President Reagan, although he had a number of policies, a number of things that hurt people of color. I would say that if this was the 90s and they were backing Newt Gingrich and backing the Republican agenda and fighting hard to continuously marginalize people, that they perhaps could have been still been Christians. Mm -hmm. And I would have supported that and said that the Christian faith and their evangelical movement was connected to Republicanism and their push. But I cannot call any single person who is supporting President Trump a Christian. I can't. I cannot let them I cannot let them hijack our faith. I cannot let them profess to be followers of the risen savior when they want to see children locked away in cages in deplorable conditions and denied basic rights and opportunities because they don't look like them. I would say those are not Christians. Those are racist. When you are supporting a president who has demeaned women, who has demeaned people of color, who has taken action to tear down the American democracy, there is no way. I can say that you are supporting this nation. You're not only you are not only not a Christian, but you're also not a good citizen of the United States of America. I would I would push back. I would say they're very much so Christian, and they're but very much so American because Christianity has always done that, and so has America. It's always been founded. Now, granted, I, I, I too am Christian, and I too am American, right? I too sing, as Langston Hughes says. But that is at the heart of our civilization. The violence, the, the racism, the misogyny, all those kinds of that's things. That's what we founded You know what? That's true. You know, I agree with you. I don't disagree with that. Yes. Is that what America was founded on? Absolutely at one base level, because our founding fathers were hypocrites. They were speaking about freedom and they were speaking about independence, but they had slaves. But the ideas that they brought to the forefront of the entire world were the ideas of freedom and independence. And I believe in those ideas. I'm not going to let any party or any group of people or any one person take that away from me and my belief and conviction in the American dream and what it means to be American. I do believe that by the grace of God, I am an American citizen because when I look around the world and I look at the tyranny and I look at the injustice and I look at the lack of freedoms, I am grateful to God that I have those freedoms as an American citizen. What I now see is a movement by white nationalists at best white supremacists at worst that are trying to encroach upon my freedoms and take them away from me and from every single marginalized individual minority in this country, whether it's because you are a person of color, whether it's because you are a woman, whether it's because you are a member of the LGBTQIA community, they are trying to strip you of those rights and take them away from you. And I'm saying you can't do that. And the same way I'm saying you can't do that to my democracy and my rights, you cannot do that to my faith. You are not the owners of Christianity. Just because you are a white nationalist or a white supremacist or Republican or an evangelical, you don't own my faith. The work of Jesus Christ on this earth is bigger than you. And you can't have it. And we're fighting. We are fighting for our country. We are fighting for our faith. We are fighting for our livelihood. And we can't stop. And we're fighting for our rights. We can't stop. It's like every day something happens that I feel like we've lost the right from doing. Uh, Women have lost their rights to choose, you know, um, and 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 in our our communities here, um, That's right. we're about to talk about Fort Worth police officer who fatally shot 
a Tatiana Jefferson was charged with murder. Charged. Charged with murder. But doesn't so, mean that they're going to be convicted. Exactly. So these are the injustices that we're dealing with as well. Yeah. So let's talk yeah. a little bit. Of, let's talk. When, 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 when we say we're fighting for rights, and this comes from civil rights activists, right? Yeah. If by the Constitution or Declaration of Independence we are quote unquote endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, then what the hell are we fighting for? Because if God has ordained and endowed within us these rights, there ain't nothing to fight for. Unless those founding documents were based on an ideal, a principle that was constructed by man, not by God. And that be the case, then we have some serious problems to address. And so I think we have to be, and I, again, I, I'm, I'm just very critical of, of everything that this country has done because I've seen what it can produce. Mm-hmm. And from the, from the fruits of, of the tree, we have to judge it. We have to judge it. And what's being produced, whether it's policing, whether it's politics, whether it's poverty, whether it's health, education, we can only judge it by its fruits. And the fruits that this country has, be- has bore is not something I'm pretty, pretty much pleased about. No, not at all. And especially in dealing with a situation like this, where we exactly. have a, yeah. a young woman mm-hmm. educated. Yeah, tell it. Let's just, yeah, cue it up. Let's talk you know, about it. A young woman who was educated and was at home taking care of her sick mother um, and was babysitting her nephew and was shot by a police officer because a neighbor who was. Uh, president of the nosy uh, rosy neighborhood watch and but that that neighbor thought they were doing what the right thing right i i see your do- door open and it's not usually open at 2 30 in the morning i probably would i would probably call you first but i would probably call uh the line that they call i guess it's not it's not 411 it's 511 i think when there's a non-emergency um, and she was fatally shot by a police officer who did not alert her, did not say, you know, I'm the police, please make yourself known. Like, none of that. And uh, allegedly she had a gun. Um, I would have a gun, I, I think, especially in Texas, everybody got guns, <laughs> you know. But I would have a gun, too, for, to protect my family. So, I don't know. Anybody want to add anything to this. I mean, I, I believe her skin color, our neighborhoods, you know. Absolutely I mean, play they, a they part. Shoot, they shoot before they ask anybody. But you they should shoot. not work in our communities if you are afraid of us. You should not be dispatched. You should not be a part of the watch for, this, for these communities. There's no reason this man should have even set foot in this community as an officer if he's afraid, afraid of yes. us. Or do you think they take this opportunity to play Hunt and kill. Know, I don't know. Kill. That's like, something I'm gonna be honest with you. That's something I've grappled with, and I'm thinking to myself. I mean, is this like a game to see how many uh, unarmed black people I can kill, or how many innocent black people I can kill and take out? Because there's a whole lot of dark web, underground, white supremacist stuff happening. I don't ever want to be a part of a conspiracy theory movement. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. I live. I'm an optimist. I live in a world of hope and I live in a world of faith. But this is absolutely jarring to happen over and over and over again. It gets to a point where you say, All right, "Is this a game? Is this a part? This is like an underground." faction of the law enforcement community dedicated to shooting and killing innocent black people. I don't know. Or is this, or is this simply the function of policing in this country? 
Mm-hmm. That it's not underground. It's not some, you know, conspiracy. To That's just what it's meant to it's be. It's just what it has always been. On the at the lowest point of my belief system, I would say I absolutely would be inclined to agree with that. But I continuously and consistently strive to not think like that. So I can live in a world in a mindset of optimism, but I think that yeah, I mean, they're, that's they're, all, I've also thought that, and I've also thought, and that makes me say there is no reason for me to ever call the police for anything. Well, I, and, and let me let me preface it. I believe that there are quote unquote good officers, right? Like in every flawed institution, there are always going to be those people who are invested in doing the right thing, right? Even in politics, everybody believes that politics is corruption, right? Inherently, it's corrupt. But there are people who are literally working day and night to ensure that people who look like you and I have every opportunity to be successful. But what message does it send to a person who does look like you and I, who has been taught to go out, do the right thing, get uh, an education, and get a good job, and take care of your family, and then you still get shot? So it, to me, sends a message of, Hopelessness. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from. If you're black, you're black, and you can get shot at any point in time, regardless of who you are, where you come from, you know, and what you're trying to achieve. And this young lady was trying to achieve some really good things. So that teaches us a lesson that there's literally nothing you can do to save yourself. There's a lesson in the scripture. And I've had to come to terms with this, uh, especially as I was in the army. But if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. That's what the scripture te- t- uh, teaches us. But those who are willing to give it all up for the kingdom, they will gain the whole world. They will, get, they will gain everything, right? And so we have to stop living in our community. And go back to your first question. We have to stop living and building community and family based on the preface, I'm just trying to save what we got. Give it up. Because you can, live, you, you, will, you can literally lose everything by the system itself. Explain give it up. Give it up, literally. I'm not here to... Listen. Your life is not your own. Like, we don't have life for us. God gave us life for the edification of his kingdom. Uh And that's it. So, because of that, when you truly embrace that, you truly understand that you're not afraid of losing anything, including your life. That's why you're not worried about money. You're not worried about power. You're not worried about prestige. All you're worried about is serving the will of God and the purpose for which you've been given life. Um. You know, and so with that being stated, uh, you know, have, have you we talking about the Lord? Have you guys seen the television show Jane the Virgin? <laughs> have we seen that? I've only seen one. You, uh, James, episode. you've never seen it. I don't watch TV, so I don't know. You've seen only one episode, Tracy. No, I don't watch TV. I have never seen Jane the Virgin a day in my life. I do watch television. I actually started this rule at my very first year as a teacher, mm-hmm. um, I was so overwhelmed with the work of being an educator that I committed to one hour of television a day just so that I would not lose touch and still, mm-hmm. you know, be aware of kind of what's going on. Now. And I, I still do that. It kind of keeps me very grounded and really uh, picking the very best. Jane the Virgin never made the very best list for me. Uh, the star of the show was seen in an Instagram story, you know, singing along with... Um, uh, the, the Fuji's, the song "Ready or Not," and she was and she repeated it and sang along and used the N word. Mm-hmm. And many celebrities have come out saying it's okay, you know, she's cool. She is saying that she grew up with black people, and, and because she's a Latina, she has a right to say it in some ways. But she apologizes, and I would be okay to a certain extent with what she's saying 
except she had a whole entire issue with her in November where she said black women are paid more than Latin women. Uh, and as a result, there isn't enough representation of Latin women, especially with Black Panther coming out and Black people getting a larger platform. And when she said that, she faced a lot of criticism for being, you know, racist mm-hmm. and at, at worst, but anti-Black at best. And I think this is, I think when you did that, I think when she did that, she lost the right to, to any use, I'm, to any Black privilege that could have been bestowed by I'm her. not okay with people saying the n-word i don't i try not to say it i'm not saying that i don't but i'm not okay with other ethnicities using the word i'm i'm tired of people especially latino latinas coming out saying we're afro latina and i'm afro latino but where are you when we get shot where are you when we have everybody want to be black till it's time to be real black? You know what I'm saying? So I just have issues mm-hmm. with this all around the all across the board. I mean, our music pumps it out, and mm-hmm. I guess you know a lot of white people and um, Latinos, you know, listen to our rap music, and they Asians, everybody, it's a, everyone's it's a term, listening. Yeah, it's a term that we've now made a term of endearment. Yeah. We've taken a term, but. If it affects me, like if we in an argument and you use it, I won't. I might fight you. Like we might mm-hmm. get into it. So if it affects me as a black woman in this way, I just will refrain from saying it. And the audacity of you to say it on Instagram, on, your Instagram. on Twitter, it just there is no filter anymore. No, there's an insensitivity to this word. It affects a lot of people. I don't care how many people. Say that oh it doesn't bother me. You could say it, but the moment a white person calls you an N word at the restaurant, you stupid N word. Oh, it affects you. But when it's in a song mm-hmm. and somebody's quoting, yeah, I think it's know, time to retire the word. I think it's okay to retire the word. I understand we've taken the word, we've given it power, we've changed it and transformed it. But I think it's some. I think it's okay to stop using certain words. I do not. I do not. I think that. You think the, it's archaic. I think it's time to let it go. I think that this word has been used to glorify. I think the word has power over a whole entire community, not from the mouths of non-black people, but from black people. And what it's doing is we talked in the very beginning of this episode about glorifying a certain type of life. That in the N-word is a part of that life that's being used to distract, that's being used to glorify, that's being used to give our young people a goal that isn't a good goal to have in the first place. So I think it's time to let the word go. But I do want to go and take umbrage and say that we have people of color that are not black who are our allies and our supporters who fight with us when we have major injustices occur, including people who are white. An example would be the Charlottesville riots and the young lady who lost her life, who was white, who was, you know, ran over by white supremacists. She was an ally. She lost her life fighting. I'm not saying it's okay for anyone. My hope is that we let the word go, period. Ban the N-word. I think there needs to be conversation had about the history of the word, right? Because most of us have romanticized our history so much that we've lost sight of what actually took place. Thank you. In the 1860s, in South Carolina, there was something called the 1860 Slave Code. And it's what they call now a perlocutionary act of enslavement. If I called you a nigga, I don't care if you were free or not. If I called you a nigga, you know what? 
you are no longer free. Because the word itself, if seen in any other context with white people, you are, you are automatically a slave again. And so if we lose sight of our story, our people will die every time. The other thing I would say is that the, per, the, 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 the people of color versus blackness dichotomy, right? It's so interesting to me. And, and I, 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 will, I will preface this by saying that I believe, like you, Dr. Kirk, that, that there are people in our community that are allies, right? But the anti-blackness within the word person of color itself is very real. If you go to South Africa, there are four types of people, right? The ethnic communities. Mm-hmm. There is colors. There is Negroes or black. Mm-hmm. There is uh, Indian. And then there's indigenous, right? They mean black. No, they have black. They have color. They have Indian. Then they have Africaners, Af- right? And so when we if we look outside of the American context, what do these words actually mean? And again, what is the black community? Some of us don't think it's outside of American context. You go to these other places, black means something totally different. They're mestizos, they're mulattoes, they're, they're what they call mutts, right? In my people's land. So our words matter. We have not intention. Our people do not use intention when they're talking. They're, not, they're just saying what comes to mind. It, you literally are killing. So we have to do better in educating our people about this word and and the damage that it has caused our people and stop embrace i don't embrace that i don't embrace the word i know when i use the word is not to glorify some someone it is to tear someone down and so i pick it you know i'm very so we're gonna work on letting it go. We'll work yes, on it. We'll, 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 we we'll commit go. to but, letting it go. But most people are very selective when they use this word. I guarantee she doesn't go up to her black friends and say, "Hey, my, how you doing?" She doesn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. She will only use it when she's rapping and when she's mad at somebody. But the emphasis cannot be this word alone. Speech has impact, and we 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 have other words that might not have the same historical context, but yet still is killing us in very real ways. Like the B word. Oh, yeah. Women walk around, what's up? You know what I mean? And are they okay with it? You guys can curse on the podcast. I mean, if you want to. And you can definitely curse tomorrow as we go into our <laughs> Tuesday episode. So I think that's a wrap for Monday. And Great show. I think it was a very enlightening show. I think we just keep getting better. So we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation on tomorrow. So uh, see you then. Bye, y'all. Thank you.